You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is a relatively new show from Medusa, our first English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. I'm your host. Who am I? I'm Kevin Rothrock. I'm the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. And on today's show, we will be discussing World War II, specifically the Soviet-German Non-Aggression Pact. I'm going to call it that because whenever I try to say Molotov-Ribbentrop, I end up saying f at the end, not... It's Ribbentrop, I think. Ribbentrop Pact. Pact. I swear, I'm, I struggle with that. So it's the non-aggression pact for today. And we're also going to be talking about the recently louder arguments between Moscow and Warsaw surrounding Poland's role at the start of the war. The inspiration for today's show is an article written by Andrei Pertsev, published by Medusa earlier this month, about President Putin's shifting rhetoric when it comes to the 1939 non-aggression pact and his growing criticism of Poland regarding the year before it was invaded and partitioned, mainly between 1938 and 1939. But we'll get to all that. While these events are many decades old, they remain hotly contested issues in Eastern Europe for obvious reasons. Millions of people died in the conflict, which ended with Poland inside the Soviet bloc for more than 40 years, and questions about who was to blame and who only did what was necessary are still issues that piss people off, they offend national and nationalist sensibilities, and generally they stir up a lot of emotions. That is undoubtedly why political elites today, in both Russia and Poland, often talk about the war, defending their country's legacy against allegations of improper behavior or immoral behavior or evil behavior from abroad. For example, the most recent war of words between Russia and Poland really heated up after Vladimir Putin wasn't invited to Warsaw last year to commemorate the 80th anniversary of the start of World War II. Sources actually told Medusa that getting snubbed for this event may have triggered the Kremlin's more aggressive comments in the last few months. But on today's show, we're not going to hear from any political elites. If you follow the news, you know that politicians already make headlines whenever they open their mouths about World War II. So today... I thought we'd entertain the novel idea of hearing from actual historians. I spoke to four of them, which, needless to say, does not amount to a comprehensive look at the war, how it started or how it's remembered now. But I do think it makes for good listening, and it captures a healthy variety of opinion and analysis from people who know what they're talking about. Before we go any further, let's take a moment to review a little basic history. The three main events that animate much of the discussion to come are... One, the Munich Agreement in September 1938, when Britain and France essentially consented to Germany's territorial claims on land inside Czechoslovakia. Two, Poland's annexation of Czechoslovak borderlands a month later, followed by a handful of small battles wherein Poland occupied several more border regions. This is probably something that a lot of people are not that familiar with. And then, of course, three, the August 1939 Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, a neutrality treaty between the USSR and Nazi Germany, which included secret protocols dividing up, let's list them, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, 
Estonia, and Finland into Soviet and German spheres of influence. It was in accordance with this agreement that Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939, and then the USSR followed 16 days later. These three events have been compared and contrasted since the war started, but it remains fairly uncontroversial to say that it was an extremely messy time in Europe, and everyone involved was dirty to some degree. Of course, that was basically the argument that Putin's been putting recently. Everyone was dirty, and Soviet Union wasn't any more dirty than anyone else. That's Jeffrey Roberts, one of the world's leading experts on Stalin, World War II, and Soviet military and diplomatic history. He's a professor of history at the University College Cork in Ireland. I asked him whom we should blame for the Second World War. Well, you know, it depends on your point of view. Now, as a historian, I specialize in the Soviet side of this story, yeah? So, and one of my main kind of like functions as a historian is to actually present the Soviet point of view. And by the Soviet point of view, I mean, you know, what Soviet leaders, Soviet decision makers were thinking at the time, what the calculations were, what they were trying to achieve. Okay. Now, if you look at it from that perspective, then from that perspective, the Soviet Union's role in relation to the outbreak of the Second World War and specifically in relation to the Nazi Soviet pact was, it wasn't aggressive. It was defensive from the Soviet point of view. Their action in signing the Nazi-Soviet pact and their subsequent action in relation to Poland, including the partition of Poland, these were defensive actions. They weren't aggressive actions. So that's the Soviet Soviet point of view. Soviet Union is on the defensive. It's manoeuvring to protect its position, protect its interests, just like any other state or government would do. That's the perspective from Moscow, of course. Professor Roberts says things naturally looked very different from the places getting invaded in the late 1930s. Of course, from the Polish perspective, those Soviet actions would, would, would appear to be uh, you know, aggressive. Uh, and the same would apply uh, in relation to you know, the Baltic states or in relation to Finland. And of course, the Soviet Union attacked Finland at the end of November 1939, again, uh, for defensive strategic purposes. But from, of course, from the Finnish point of view, that was uh, you know, an act of aggression. So it depends on your point of view, doesn't it? Yeah, it depends on which perspective you look at it. And of course, the thing about being a historian, okay, I, I mean, I said that I specialize in the Soviet side of this story, and one of my main responsibilities is to present that story and based on uh, the, the evidence that's available. But I also have a responsibility as a historian to present other points of view and different arguments and different inter in interpretations, yeah? So, you know, as a historian, I'm pursuing my own narrative, my own set of interpretations, but I also have scholarly responsibilities, indeed moral responsibilities, not to distort the evidence in my favour, not to distort other people's arguments, to take you know, all the different points of view into consideration. And that's what I've striven to do in relation to this particular issue and also in relation to all, all the other historical research that I've done. This gets at a bigger question. How do scholars engage an issue like responsibility for starting a war? In the politics of how we remember these events, arguing about who's to blame for World War II is often a matter of pride or indignation. For historians, it's both methodological, like, is it a fair research question? And it's ethical, as professionals and those who speak for the dead, you know, what are they supposed to say? It's not as simple as where do we point the finger? Or maybe it is that simple. If you ask me the question who started World War II, the answer is very simple, Nazi Germany. Now, there, there's this broader question is how we got there, which is usually a bit more complex. That's Tom Junes. He's a historian who specializes in Polish history, and he's currently based at the European Institute in Florence, Italy. He has another affiliation, but honestly, I'm afraid I'll mispronounce it. I'm a Maris Kodowska-Curie fellow. That's the one. That's the affiliation. 
He says the complexities of broader questions about how Nazi Germany came to start the Second World War, that's where the trouble begins for historians. This is also where the politics can interfere. And as uh, I like to tell my students as well, we're often dealing with memory politics here, right? Not necessarily history. Historians, we just study the past, we try to understand and interpret it with uh, memory politics and, and sort of other dealing with the past issues in Eastern Europe, you're often dealing with issues of um, adjudicating or legislating history. Even. So the, the crucial issue here is always to understand that memory politics are politics. It might sound simple, but it's, this is why it's also complicated, why emotions uh, get uh, flared up uh, at times. And this is also why we see opinions change. Right, So the current debate about World War II, if we take the last decade, we see what the countries involved have been trying to say. All that we can first conclude is that every country seems to be rewriting history in the last 10 years. Can historians contribute to the debate, to the sort of politics of memory? Or is it something that is sort of outside their control? Like are historians in their world poring over archival documents and writing what they hope are objective interpretations or summations of what they could deduce from the documents that they saw, or maybe the interviews they did with survivors and so on, and then politicians and the general public are in an entirely different sphere, or how do the two interact if they do? They interact on several levels. I, I think for historians, um, it's often frustrating, let's say if you are an academic based at a university, because what is part of the public debate or what politicians uh, bring up is doesn't always reflect the scholarship or the current state of the scholarship. Then there are, of course, historians who are more employed by, by various institutions uh, affiliated with states or engaging in memory politics. So in Eastern Europe, I mean, various countries have sort of their versions of institutes of national memory. They employ historians and and. and this is usually a sort of what they call politics of history that is being produced. And um, I'd say that there is already some tension on that field among historians because, of course, there are facts, but facts can be interpreted differently, can be contextualized differently. So again, this is where a lot of the trouble comes from. And it just gets worse because um, historians have their own historical, critical tools uh, to debate issues politics is uh, a very different game. Okay, let's step away from these abstractions and get at some of the questions surrounding the three main events in the late 1930s, the ones that are outlined at the beginning of this episode. The Munich Agreement, Poland's annexation of Czechoslovak territory immediately afterwards, and the German-Soviet non-aggression pact. How does Dr. Junes view this succession of events? He says the history of the late 1930s has flavored Russian-Polish relations for the last 30 years. And it's not a good flavor. This is one of the major issues uh, between Poland and, and Russia ever since 89. Now, again, it's, it's striking, right? Because as I said before, uh, history is being rewritten. If we go back a few years, I mean, Russia admitted to the secret protocol. I mean, Putin himself in 2009, speaking in Poland, uh, condemned the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Ten years later, people are saying different things, and yet the historical facts as such haven't changed. So, so this is where we see the politics come in. On the other hand, well, it, it's, it's part of a broader narrative. You'd see this in the West as well, but we have this uh, narrative of appeasement of, of Munich, of how um, Britain and France uh, were 
appeasing Hitler and, and pushing him east. So uh, the, the problem with, let's say, the distortion on Putin's side is, is more that he's not necessarily changing that much of the narratives. He's just putting them in a different context, and especially by not mentioning or trying to silence out certain inconvenient facts. So when they can point to, well, Poland did take part of Czechoslovakia, but it is still not the same case as Poland was not conniving or scheming with Hitler to carve up uh, Czechoslovakia. So the two um, events are not necessarily the same here. Okay, so historians don't like playing the blame game. It requires oversimplification, and it's an inherently biased point of view that's antithetical to the social sciences or, I don't know, the humanities, depending on where you place the study of history. Anyway, historians are, however, happy to debate the facts. So I asked UCLA professor Arch Getty, a Soviet historian, if Putin in his remarks in recent years about Poland in World War II is more wrong or more right. Uh, in my opinion, at least, he's more right than wrong. Now, of course, he has his own political motives. Uh, he has an audience to play to, a patriotic audience. So his motivations are, are self-interested in a sense. But as far as the factual record is concerned, I think he's more right than wrong. To wrap your head around the thought, frightening to many, I'm sure, that Vladimir Putin could be right about this to some extent, you've got to assault a few common misperceptions about how the war started, says Dr. Getty. If we look, for example at the Nazi-Soviet Pact of August 1939, there's a lot of nonsense floating around about how that started World War II. That, was, that made World War II inevitable. Well, you know, we need to step back and kind of get a grip for a second. Hitler started World War II. Uh, it was German expansion that led to the war. Echoing what we heard from Dr. Roberts in Ireland, Professor Getty says the USSR's pact with Hitler was motivated by defensive interests and precipitated by the political divisions at the time throughout Europe. The Soviet Union finds itself in a position at this point, given the British and French appeasement and given Polish intransigence in 1939. What's the Soviet Union to do? Hitler was coming their way. And not that Hitler, not that Stalin rather, has any grand plan. I don't think he does. But... The Poles, for example, at the time of Munich the year before, had, you know, supported the Munich Agreement to dismember Czechoslovakia, to take away the Sudetenland, because they wanted to grab uh, part of the Czech Republic for themselves, which they did. The Poles in 1938 and in 1939 refused to allow the passage of Soviet troops through their territory to fight the Nazis, if it came to that. Now, one can understand that. Nobody wants the Soviet army in their country. On the other hand, uh, how is the Soviet Union supposed to fight Hitler without going there? Therefore, you know, there's, there's intransigence and blame all the way around. But I think Putin has a point here that the Soviets were boxed in security-wise by the middle of 1939 to the point where, you know, if they didn't cut some kind of deal with Hitler they would find themselves facing Hitler much further east when Hitler gobbled up all of Poland. I think it was a matter of, you know, Stalin having to pick the least bad of alternatives. But to say that that started World War II, I think, is, is nonsense. 
There's plenty of blame all the way around if you want to play the blame game. The British and the French were to blame for appeasing Hitler. The Poles were to blame for not, you know, being receptive to a deal against Hitler. The Soviets are to blame, of course, because they did, in fact, cut a deal with Hitler. But everybody is working here in their national interest. And I think Putin has a point that in terms of Soviet security, pretty much any leader would have done, would have had to have done what Stalin did because uh, he had no choices at that point. But how far can we take this interpretation of Soviet diplomacy and military policy? When he was still Russia's culture minister, Vladimir Medinsky said in 2015 that the non-aggression pact was a tremendous success of Stalinist diplomacy. But does the data support a claim like that? I think Medinsky, aside from being an idiot, went way too far uh, here by saying that it was a triumph. It was not a, it's not a triumph when you have to pick the least bad of your options. If success means postponing the fight with Hitler, yeah, there's a measure of success there. But it was, of course, unsuccessful because Stalin and Hitler were not allies. It was a non-aggression pact. And sooner or later, there was, there was going to be a battle. Jeffrey Roberts says judging the success of the non-aggression pact requires looking at what Berlin and Moscow gained from the deal. Like with assigning blame for opening the door to Germany starting the war, he says it's ultimately too simple to call the agreement either a triumph or a disaster. Well, it, it, it was successful to the extent that it kept the Soviet Union out of the war. Yeah, the Soviet Union was able to remain neutral, and that was the main purpose of signing the non-aggression treaty with, with the Germans, was to keep the Soviet Union out of the war, right? It was also successful in the sense that the Germans made various political and territorial concessions to the Soviet Union, yeah? including Soviet expansion into, into Poland and also into the, later on into the Baltic states. So that, that from, from that point of view, the policy was a success. Uh, it was successful that after the, the Nazi-Soviet pact, there was extensive um, trade and economic cooperation between Germany and the Soviet Union. So from and, and the Soviets benefited greatly from that. So there's certainly an argument to say that you know the not signing the Nazi-Soviet pact you know, was a successful maneuver in many different uh, respects. But of course. <laughs> You need to look at it in a broader perspective because it wasn't just the Soviets who gained from the pact, the Germans gained as well. So how do you, how do you balance what Germany gained from the Nazi-Soviet pact from what the Soviets gained from the Nazi-Soviet pact? And then the other thing to bring into picture is, of course, is that what happened eventually. What happened eventually, of course, was that the Germans broke the Nazi-Soviet pact and they attacked the Soviet Union. And that attack on the Soviet Union was... Uh, was, was, was a very successful attack, at least initially. Yes, you know, the Germans got as far as Moscow. They almost, they surrounded Leningrad. Uh, they captured Kiev. Operation Barbarossa was a huge success uh, for the first first few months. So then the question is, well, what's the connection between that German military success in the Soviet Union, which was hugely costly to the Red Army and to the Soviet people? What's the connection between that and the Nazi-Soviet pact and all the events associated with Nazi-Soviet pact, how would you actually weigh that? So it's, it's, a, it's a very kind of like complex set of questions we're dealing with here. And there's, there's no kind of simple answers. And of course, you know, you know, politicians and indeed some historians want to give simple answers. They either want to say, yeah, you know, the Nazi-Soviet pact was a triumph, or they want to say it was a disaster, or they want to say, yes, uh, the Germany almost won the war, or won the Soviet-German war because of the Nazi-Soviet pact, whereas others would say, no, the Nazi-Soviet pact uh, saved the Soviet Union. Settling on some kind of middle ground when it comes to assessing the Soviet non-aggression pact is hardly satisfying, however, for anyone who views it as either 
Moscow's last resort, or, I don't know, the rape of Poland, where Tom Junes incidentally says the national memory has coalesced around a legacy of being the first to take up arms against the Nazis. The main narrative would be like, well, Poland was the first country to fight. That's even a slogan that's being promoted, like Poland first to fight, first to resist. So uh, ironically, in contrast to, for instance, Czechoslovakia, right? So in this sense, it's like Poland was the, the, the hero, the martyr resisting, but was sacrificed, uh, you know, at the big conferences in, in Yalta and Potsdam. And um, uh, while Poles fought on all fronts, because uh, it's, it's interesting, of course, not to forget that there was a Polish army fighting on the Western Front with the Western Allies um, and a Polish army fighting on the Eastern Front together with the Soviets marching on Berlin. One army was emphasized after 89, the other was emphasized and tried to forget about the other army. In, in general, one would say that it's this kind of double notion of a martyr, a victim of ang- aggression, but at the same time, a nation that resisted heroically. And anything that could damage the purity of that image is, of course, uh, something that can lead to tension, to political conflict in in memory politics. So I'm here mainly referring also to uh, a lot of research on the Holocaust that can implicate that uh, Poles were uh, sometimes uh, collaborating, that some Poles denounced Jews, that some Poles killed Jews. So this is a very inconvenient, a very dark part of history that can stain this more pure double image of the, let's say, the hero martyr nation. States and politicians, of course, they uh, use his, historians and history, uh, historians' work to justify, to proliferate their own views. And some historians join the ranks, some others try to resist. So historians cannot uh, stay outside of all of these de- debates, even if they wanted to. That's Ivan Karilla, a history professor at the European University at St. Petersburg. He studies the use of history, historical memory, and historical politics in Russia and the former USSR. I asked him about the challenges of his job. You know, it's very hard now to be a historian of the 20th century, not only in Russia, I think in all, at least Eastern Europe, and maybe even in some other places in the world, because the 20th century is still uh, somehow, we, it's hard to establish a distance between us and the tragedies of the 20th century. At the risk of a very stupid question, and while acknowledging the conflict's devastation and upheaval, I asked Dr. Carilla why the Second World War remains such a politically potent issue in Eastern Europe. After all, in the United States, where most Americans believe wholeheartedly that the victory belongs to our country, it's not really something we think about that often outside of Hollywood action movies. We're more forward-looking people, obviously, who oh yeah, are still arguing about the legacy of our 19th century civil war. Okay, you, you Americans also have the civil war, which is still resonates. Uh, and, you know, some, sometimes it's, Americans became very emotional about the civil war and civil war monuments recently. So it's not just a, a Russian uh, situation in, in, you know, in the dealings with the past, with the tragic past, with some controversial past. Okay, point taken. That said, It's not just that the Second World War continues to resonate with Russians, but that there's been a paradigm shift in the tone of how the war is remembered in Russia. To understand this, Professor Kirilla says you've got to grasp the difference between what he calls personal memory 
and social memory. One of the changes was uh, the generation of war veterans is fading away. By now, the war veterans are people in the you know, late 90s, so very few of them are still alive, unfortunately, you know, and of course, they're, they're not active in, in the public life anymore. So the difference between the previous decades and until the end of the last uh, century uh, when the veterans were still pretty active and visible. We now don't have in the public space people with uh, personal memory of the war or personal memory of the repressions on the other hand, of the Stalin repressions, I mean. So all of these traumas, uh, trauma of the repressions and trauma of the huge sacrifice of the Second World War, and of course the victory in the Second World War, has transferred from the personal memory of the active part of the population to like social memory. And social memory is something that's quite easier to be manipulated. And that's why politicians had like you know less um, restrictions, less checks uh, when they want to manipulate with the memory and uh, use it for their own their own aims. Earlier in his presidency, Putin made time for both the USSR's heroics and the trauma of Soviet history's darker days, like the Stalinist repressions and the treaty with Hitler. Then came the annexation of Crimea, and the Kremlin's traditionalist turn says. Dr. Kirilla. Putin, in the first, at least in the first decade of his presidency uh, in 2000s, was still attentive to both narratives, to both stories about the war and the victory in the war and about repressions. He visited the place of mass executions, so, so there was a, not, a, not an attempt to juxtapose, to, to compare or to to make one memory uh, exclusive to another one. And all of that happened quite recently in the middle of the, okay, of this decade, of the last decade, about after uh, Crimea, after Ukraine, after the tra- so-called traditional turn in Russian uh, ideology, when the state uh, started to, to restrict uh, the way the society remembered the Second World War, and when the problems with the neighbors, especially with Poland, not only with Poland, but Poland is a kind of the leading uh, Western, okay, West from Russia, uh, Eastern European nation, which uh, al- always challenged the Russian uh, Russian narrative about the Second World War. So when this challenge turned to be a kind of something that some historians call memory war, at that time, uh, the second narrative, the narrative about repressions, became a kind of a, another victim of these memory wars. Jeffrey Roberts stresses the continuity of Putin's comments on World War II, arguing that the tone may have shifted, but the content remains the same. He's become much more defensive or defensive in relation to defending Soviet actions. And he's also become much more hostile, much more critical towards uh, you know toward, towards Poland but having said that there has been a lot of, you know, a continuity in what what he's been saying and he's always said and he's still saying basically that the Soviet Union was no worse than any other state in the 19, 1930s more importantly perhaps Robert says Putin's handling of the historical record isn't as politicized as his critics allege methodologically at least the Russian president may actually be modeling his thinking, on how social scientists operate. He's actually trying to approach it uh, kind of like a historian would, by saying, okay, let's look at what the evidence says. 
let's look at what the documents say. So in, in, in the main speech he gave about this subject just before Christmas, it's a very, very long speech in which he, he cites in detail from these um, diplomatic documents to prove his or to prove his basic point that, you know, you know <laughs> the Soviet Union was par- bad and so was Poland, so was Great Britain uh, and so was France. Now, I'm not saying that his interpretation and use of those documents was... Um, was, was, was correct, but I welcome the fact that he's trying to present his case, prove his argument by, by referring to the evidence rather than just uh, you know, indulging in political and ideological polemics. Arch Getty also says that Putin's World War II rhetoric is defensive, and he pushes back against those who say the Russian president is doing anything suspicious with Russia's memory of the war, given that every nation in the history of nations organizes itself around a certain mythology. I think he found himself on the defensive in the international propaganda war. What political leader anywhere in the world doesn't do that? Um, what sort of mainstream media anywhere in the world does not have foundational myths or patriotic myths? I mean, it's part and parcel of being a modern state. Uh, look at all the stuff that's come out lately about George Washington, good guy or bad guy. Turns it turns out, you know, we have to make him a good guy, even though he was, you know, kind of a schmuck. Um, every country in the world does that because every country needs a usable past. This is this is a phrase that historians often use. Uh, every country needs a usable past. You can call it a foundational myth, or you can call it a, a legitimacy myth, or whatever it is. But there's nothing unique about about Putin here. Every political leader does this. Every political system or regime does this because they, they sort of have to do this. I think it's ironic that we are, you know, pointing our finger at Putin about creating a useful history, a useful patriotism. When, in fact, if you look at the countries of Eastern Europe, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, they too have had to create a usable past. And this has led to such outrageous things as uh, forgetting the fact that they somehow collaborated with the Nazis and killed a lot of Jews. It, it overlooks the fact uh, in Ukraine, for example, that a lot of people touted now as national heroes were in fact mass murderers. Um, people who killed more Jews than the Germans even told them to. So everybody creates a usable past. It's just sometimes it's more ridiculous than in other places. Tom Junes agrees that state officials in both Russia and Poland want to wrap themselves in sanitized retellings of their national past. And he thinks the celebration this May of the 75th anniversary of Victory Day and the centennial of the Polish-Soviet War, which ended in 1920, if you're doing the math in your head right now, these events mean that tensions will be around for a while. Both governments want to rewrite history. Both governments are engaging in whitewashing, blackwashing. So, you know, Russia needs this Second World War victory because it is, I mean, it's the foundation myth of Putin's Russia. It's, I think, also about Putin's legacy in the sense that, well, Russia has to be recognized as a great power. In order for that, you need Russia as this victorious nation of World War II. I think we can very much see a flaring up because the current government in Poland, which is being criticized by the West and by Europe, it's going to try and present itself as the defender of Europe. And look, 100 years ago, 
we defended European civilization against the Bolshevik hordes. Oh, actually, Russia, Putin's Russia. This is the same. We're doing the same, right? So don't criticize us. We're the real Europeans. That is the message you're going to hear around August. So there's enduring political pressure to whitewash these moments in history. And the people who actually witnessed these events are nearly all died and gone. Under these circumstances, you might worry that there won't be any obstacles left preventing the authorities from rewriting history without any of the unflattering stuff. In Russia, at least, says Ivan Karilla, it's not as easy as you might think. There is an interesting story about the school textbooks. Uh, in 2013, uh, President Putin offered an idea of so-called unified history textbook for schools. And he wanted, and people, uh, and historians, first of all, were much afraid that that should be some kind of ideology textbook. But then it turns out that there is a long and com complicated, complex you know, way of writing and approving uh, history textbooks, which uh, actually needed an approval of history, historical community of, uh, you know, of Academy of Sciences, uh, Institutes of History, uh, History of Russia and Universal History and the Academy of Sciences. And it looked, uh, and it, uh, you know, appeared that it was just very difficult to introduce the direct ideology or direct fake myth into the textbooks. Of course, the textbooks were adapted to more, you know, more statist uh, point of view, but it, it was, it was very difficult. It was, it proved to be impossible to change it uh, radically. And my understanding was that some other initiatives, innovations in the history poli politics in Russia, like, you know, creation of the, of the network of museums, Russia, my history. I don't know if you, if you heard about that, but, you know, we have more than 20 huge multimedia exhibitions in the major cities with their own versions of Russian history. And that was, from my understanding, was made just because the textbooks were too rigid, too difficult to penetrate. So they decided to bypass it to make multimedia exhibition with a more freedom to to construct history ideologists wanted. So it was not as easy to change history textbooks. It turns out that it's still there are some checks from the professional community. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. On today's show, we talked about the legacy of the Soviet-Nazi non-aggression pact and the war of words between Moscow and Warsaw about who started the war about 80 years ago. On future episodes of this show, we'll be discussing a bombshell web documentary about Russia's HIV and AIDS epidemic, and we'll look at queer Russophone science fiction. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first English-language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or, you know, wherever you're tuning in to help put the show in front of more people. Thanks for listening, and come back soon.